The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on Twitter to join these conversations live. And check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets. And now, on to our Lead Lag Live discussion, hosted by Michael Guyon. My name is Michael Guyad, publisher of the Lee Lag Report. Uh, joining me for the hour, Mark Nelson, who was very kind in rescheduling a couple of things to join us here today. Uh, this space is going to be all about uh, the investment case for nuclear, kind of a uh, follow-up to Kevin Bambro's uh, space with me. Uh, before we get too deep into anything, just set the stage for the audience about who you are and what you do. Sure. And I wanted to say that sometimes people have trouble with the Twitter spaces. My DMs are open. Um, anybody who sends a question or comment, I will eventually get back to you. And if you want to, you want a second attempt to get your question up on the show, feel free to send it along to my, my inbox on Twitter. So my background, I'm from Oklahoma, um, come from a, a line of engineers. Uh, I've got one side of the family in oil and gas on the other side. My mom's a nuclear medical technologist, meaning she injects babies with dangerous reactor waste in order to save their lives. Just kidding a little bit, but we can cover that if people are interested in that later and, and what it means for the popular conception of nuclear. Um, I studied engineering at Oklahoma State University and then switched from aero engineering to nuclear engineering for grad school over in the UK. I thought I was going to have a very normal career going and working on uh, nuclear reactors in the UK after I uh, finished my master's, but it was a weird time. The UK couldn't figure out what it did, what its energy policy was. Gas seemed pretty cheap. It was very hard for anybody to see an investment case for nuclear. And so projects were just twisting in the wind. I couldn't get hired. I came back to America, went to a place with very troubled nuclear plants on the edge of shutdown in Ohio. So that was very difficult. And I somehow failed my way into getting involved with pro-nuclear environmentalists based out in the Bay Area. Yes, there's a new environmental movement, um, pretty influenced by sort of Silicon Valley thinking, uh, futurists, um, entrepreneurs who want to figure out a cool technology solution that'll, that'll help solve the world's big issues. And because nuclear was a hot topic in those spaces back, you know, 10 years ago, uh, by the time we're looking at me going out to California in 2015-16, there was several groups started up to explore how to change people's minds on nuclear and how to win the policy, the policy race and the sort of social elite race for nuclear to be included as green energy um, in the future. So I worked for Michael Schellenberger out in Berkeley, California until about 2019 and then we realized that we needed to we need to split different ways so that I could get more involved in advising the industry um, what they were doing wrong or what they were doing right or where we saw them uh, making mistakes that would come back to haunt us in say policy and communications so I do work with industry as a consultant and then you could say that my specialty is, working to save existing nuclear plants. It's a bit of a tricky thing to do to try to eat on because most of the time, if a nuclear plant is closing, its owner has decided to close it. That means it's very difficult to convince them otherwise. And it takes all sorts of pressure, media, 
um, social organizing, and that's typically looked at very skeptically by a conservative and scared little industry like nuclear power. So I save nuclear plants and I uh, consult on clean energy at Radiant Energy Group. And I think we are ready for questions, Michael. The audience on why nuclear is green and why it has to be considered ESG. Right. So um, this is a conversation I'm going to say really quickly is based on physical characteristics. Then we will briefly touch on with all that said, why is it not considered green yet by really important uh, asset managers, ratings firms, market makers, and politicians. So nuclear energy is extremely powerful in very small spaces, very small volumes. Splitting one uranium atom gets you about 210 million electron volts of energy per reaction. Breaking one hydrocarbon molecule like uh, methane gets you about 10 electron volts. So we're talking 210 million electron volts per reaction for uranium and 10 per molecule of methane. Don't ask how much there is in, in harvesting wind and solar. It's not a great, it's not a great number. So then if you can capture that energy, if you can, if you can conserve that energy and pass it to a generator, you can make magic happen. You can power a civilization with very little mining, very little resource source extraction, very little environmental interaction. That's the, that's the magic. Um, because of the battle over whether nuclear is considered green or not, a very large amount of academic research has been done, has been commissioned and completed trying to determine is nuclear actually low carbon? The answers are overwhelmingly yes. Nuclear is extremely low carbon in most cases as low carbon or lower carbon than wind and solar. So that's done. Then the question is, well, how damaging is the mining? How damaging is the waste? And because of the tiny amount of uranium actually going through these power plants, relatively little mining has to occur. And there's almost no nuclear waste. In fact, in some ways, I can say the problem with nuclear waste is it's such a, such a non-pressing issue that what we do with it is almost arbitrary, meaning it's almost impossible to decide. It's not like forcing us to do something. The Dutch don't sit around and bicker for decades about whether to build a seawall to stop from flooding them from being flooded. They just do it because it's a life or death problem. We can bicker for decades about nuclear waste because there's almost none of it and no one's getting hurt by it. It's just sitting there. So nuclear is physically clean. It's physically green. But is it socially green? That is a question where Nuclear has been excluded by definition, where people say green energy is that which isn't nuclear and isn't fossil. They're not interested in a debate on the physics. They're not interested in a debate on emissions. So it's really a question of, do you believe that the presence of nuclear energy technology raises the risk of thermonuclear war or not? It is an unprovable thing. We cannot say yes or no. The only nuclear weapons that have ever been used were used when there were no nuclear electricity reactors. Um, we do not have many examples of uh, countries intentionally misusing the same equipment that they're using to make electricity to then make weapons. It doesn't mean it can't happen. It's just uh, a more annoying path than just making a separate secret weapons program, right? So typically what we find is that all of the environmental characteristics of nuclear are ignored in order for people to focus entirely on a perceived link between nuclear energy and nuclear weapons. And that has been the key thing that has excluded nuclear from counting as ESG, from counting as green. Those walls, those exclusions are starting to crack. They're starting to break down. And, the, and that's breaking down from two different directions. One, Countries that see nuclear energy as life or death, like even more important than climate change, are needing to show their support for that technology by making sure that it's included as green in whatever metrics they use. So Russia was one of the first here. Now South Korea, with the election of a pro-nuclear government ending six years of destruction of their nuclear program, 
they have immediately said that they were going to include nuclear as explicitly green under the South Korean investment taxonomy. European Union is still struggling to do the right thing here under the malign influence of the Germans, but it's pretty clear that Germ- that Germany is not going to be able to stop nuclear energy from being mostly included as a sort of little brother green energy under the EU's rules coming up um, later this year. And I could go through a few more examples, but the walls are coming down. Also very interesting, large asset managers, large investment groups are experiencing internal civil wars between interested parties within their own companies about whether they should privately be considering nuclear as green or being prepared for if other people do or if clients ask for it, are they going to accept clients saying, we've got some billions, we think nuclear is green, what do you have for us? So those battles, those social battles are ongoing within big asset managers it seems pretty clear that nuclear is either going to win or ESG as a category is going to collapse or decline from prominence. One of those two things seems pretty clear to me at this point. I'm calling my, calling my shot. Cynically, I'll say that when it really starts to perform, at least stocks that are in the area, in the industry, that's when you'll see it included in ESG. But let's talk about Germany for a second. So why is it that Germany has such uh, sway over, uh, this nuclear decision, right? Uh, because I think there's obviously some some regret now, but but talk through some of the history there. Sure. Um, to be really blunt, if they're providing all the all the all the alcohol and all the food at the party and the and the space, they get a lot of sway in setting the rules. That is, the rules are technically just for the funds that are going through certain EU programs to reinvest in rebuilding Europe from coronavirus or whatever the current excuse is. Because almost all of the funds net are going to be coming from Germany, they have enormous sway in how the rules get set. And I, 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 it sounds like I'm apologizing for them. No, no, screw Germany. It's just they just since they're providing... They're they're the they're the party founders. They're they're providing the treats. They get a lot of say at the door. Um, now they are they are strongly discredited at the moment. Um, they've clearly led Europe down an extremely dangerous path that's very self serving, and they uh, don't really know how to exit it. And they're making fools of themselves. So their prestige has never been lower. But they don't Germans don't experience shame. I just don't think they experience shame. I'm making a very dangerous generalization about 80, 83 million Germans or whatever, but like I, I have many German friends. I like them a lot. I don't think they experience the feeling of shame, even though they have phrases like Brem Shaman, you know, um, that's the shame they feel for others, not themselves. So I don't think that that's going to be effective in making this be included, nuclear be included. And there's one more problem. The pro-nuclear countries in the EU include France. France are the most cynical nation ever. They would destroy nuclear as an ESG investment if they thought that they could have an advantage for themselves in doing it. It does. We don't have proof of this, but it does really feel like many of the weird, annoying, illogical requirements that have been weighing down nuclear in the rules for the green taxonomy have been put there at the request of France, which is weird because you think, oh, French is in, the French are in nuclear. Why would they put limitations and restrictions on the use of nuclear as a green technology? It's because they have a ton of value-added services and markets to defend by putting restrictions that they see will make it more difficult for outside groups like the Koreans or the Americans or, or you know, I would have said the Russians a few months ago. They might have put in those restrictions to stop other countries from getting European nuclear deals. And that's exactly the sort of thing that the the way the French would manage their affairs. Smaller pie for nuclear, even uh, just so they could get a bigger slice of the business for themselves. So Europe has been divided beyond just Germany having such a strong position because almost all the money is net is going to be coming from them. Does that does that answer your question? Yeah, no, that's good. And I'm going to assume that you don't really have much focus on nuclear in the Middle East. But correct me if I'm wrong. It's I look at nuclear everywhere. What would you like to talk about with about nuclear in the Middle East? We'll be back after a quick break. 
Hello, listeners. Michael Gayad here from Lead Lag Live. Are you ready to take a deep dive into market trends, risk management, and investment strategies? Then you need the Lead Lag Report. Our in-depth analysis helps you understand the financial markets like never before. And guess what? We're giving you a chance to experience it at a discounted rate. Visit theleadlag.report slash leadlaglive and get an exclusive 30% off on your subscription. Don't miss out. Level up your investment game with the Lead Lag Report. And now, back to our discussion. Well, you know, so, so let's talk about that because obviously the Middle East has got a lot of oil and you can argue that, you know, they don't really need to focus on nuclear. But 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 talk through that part of the world as it relates to conceptions around nuclear and any investments that are going on. Sure. And I mean, as any drug dealer knows, you can have a lot of drugs, but you make money off of selling it, not using it yourself, right? The Middle East knows that the big money is made by selling it, not subsidizing their own lifestyles with more of it. So really, the UAE made a momentous decision for the entire region in many ways. Back in 2005 and six, when folks first put the idea to them that they could get a nuclear program. The UAE going down that path was immense. Qatar did pot shots, diplomatic and and cultural pot shots at them the entire time because of the fear that UAE would definitely succeed in nuclear energy. Those fears were borne out. UAE spent, uh, what, three or four years three or four years planning. They spent two years executing the start of the program. They've then spent six, seven years in construction. And then for four years in a row, they're going to be opening a giant new nuclear reactor. At the end of that four-year period in 2023, starting 2019, 2023, four giant nuclear reactors representing 25% of their electricity will have started within that that final um, 96 months of their program extraordinary. Uh, wait, 96 months, sorry, 48 months, right, four years. So that sent shockwaves around the Middle East. Everybody knows they need a nuclear energy program. Look for very big news out of Saudi Arabia in the, in the coming year. Okay, let's get into some of the logistics around what it takes to launch a nuclear plant, how the government's evolved, and how long it takes. Because I think uh, those kind of details are important in terms of thinking about the longer term solution. Right. So, so one of the things I get pushback on people are like, Oh, well, of course UAE was going to do it. That's that doesn't count in telling us whether nuclear is investable. They could just spend their money. No, they got excellent initial advice, extremely good consulting help setting up their program. They chose very sharp people to supervise it and to advise. They made, they made decisions that were more expensive up front with a greater probability of long-term success of their program, like insisting that their own citizens be trained and qualified to Western standards to do many of the most important roles in the plant. That insistence has been transformative for the acceptance of their program and and the meaning of their program in their country that, you know, a little girl in the UAE can dream of being a reactor operator, grow up, get qualified and, you know, push the control buttons at Baraka, like that, those decisions were substituting uh, fast, easy money, like quick uh, money paths with long-term, careful, strategic thinking. Now, th- they also chose a very competitive nuclear proposal. They chose the the cheapest one on the table. It was a great deal. They they got a lot of good out of that Korean contract. Um, and I don't think it's fair to say that. UAE just was so rich that they could do it, but no one else can. It's not true. However, what we can see from the UAE is that it does take some time, depending on your state capacity, depending on your uh, human resources, right? I think this is one of the things. If you can't get a strong leadership in place on the nuclear program, your nuclear program is just not going to make electricity in the future. Very strong, careful, competent leadership is absolutely necessary in nuclear. One of the reasons UK has flip-flopped back and forth like a like a like a suffocating fish left out on a dock, like is because they just have had extremely weak leadership on nuclear issues. They just don't know what it means, don't know whether it's good, can't figure out this whole electricity market thing. They've just been confused. 
So the longer that confusion time is there, you can have a nearly interminable lead up period to getting a nuclear program. Maybe to answer your question, I'd say, how many years, if you have good, strong leadership and good advice and a good direction, if you already have nuclear energy and a nuclear regulator, it might in the future take as long as setting up nuclear from scratch because the current movement in regulation is seeing regulators specifically focus on being able to license a very specific reactor because that reactor is what the project proposal, the only project proposal in the nation at a time is being built around. That is to say, custom-built regulators from scratch without dead weight specifically to provide a strong, careful, independent view of whether a given type of reactor is safe or and is being built safely and is being qualified and is being tested well and is safe to operate in that country. So the regulator in UAE has gotten very strong, independent uh, reviews for doing this. And that regulator is just not set up to regulate five different types of reactors. They were set up to very specifically look at and approve or not approve the Korean reactors that were being uh, proposed for construction in the country. So that's one of the things that can make the lead time of a country getting nuclear shorter. Now, I don't think it's hopeless for countries to get more nuclear if they already have it and already have a regulator that already has turf to defend. It's just a, a different kind of struggle. The country to watch here for me is Canada. Canada is very serious or in many levels of government, maybe not the executive, about getting more nuclear. They have a very high profile SMR, small modular reactor program in Ontario. Um, they have a regulator that's very excited about not just learning that reactor, approving it and keeping it safe or not approving it and making them redesign. Like they, they want to make sure that they have the stroke to not just be a rubber stamp for that reactor, but they're also looking forward to selling their expertise to other countries that specifically want to replicate that exact project. All these things we hope will take the lead time that currently UAE gives us an example of about four or five, six years to, before the, 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 the nuclear construction is undergoing. And then what, four or five, six, seven years before your first nuclear electricity is produced. We're hoping that that lead time can be strong, not just in new nuclear countries, but countries that are restarting their nuclear construction, like Canada. I, I do have a lot of fun chatting about Germany, not just in Germany, with Germans, both for and against nuclear. Spent a lot of uh, beautiful time over the last uh, five years working on the Germany issue, do a lot of activism. So there, if you want some non-professionalism, it's because I actually think it's extremely dangerous um, and undermining what Germany is doing, even if they have the right to do it. So I do speak as a non-professional in that way. I will say that um, I, I think by saying that Germany is the sponsor of the feast, so they want to set rules, that is an unusually pro-German and German sympathetic way to answer that. I think you may have been a little put off by some of my other statements and may have missed that. Another thing is I have immense respect for German industry and German economy. Whatever they decide to do, no matter how good or bad, by golly, they accomplish it, right? Um, I mean, that's the danger and the opportunity of Germany. It's just whatever they go towards, they keep going towards it until they get there. Um, so the goal setting is what's really the delicate matter, not whether Germany is one of the most extraordinary industrial societies the world has ever known. Does nuclear come up in discussion when you're discussing fossil fuels or does it come up in discussion when you're discussing clean energy? The answer is both and it belongs in both conversations. I will say that when the subject is how to stay alive in emergencies, you just don't really hear that much about giant wind and solar programs. Like in February and March, I, most of Europe was extremely windy up until the day that that Russia invaded Ukraine. And then across Europe, winds just kind of stopped. I don't think that Putin controls the weather. I don't think that the weather controlled Putin. I just think that when it was life or death, people will do what it takes to protect their economy, to protect their families. They will burn whatever is nearby to keep the hearth warm if that's what it takes to survive. 
That's what people have always done. And it's going to keep happening when you're on survival discussion, when you're about protecting home and hearth, not only does nuclear enter the conversation more alongside, you know, maybe slightly unpopular or objectionable lignite coal or hard coal or natural gas or oil, not only does it come in, but some of the common fears and objections to nuclear energy when nuclear is part of the green conversation fall away in the same voices when the subject is how to protect life and limb, how to protect your home, how to protect your family. And I mean those things both metaphorically, like a a whole country economy as represented by policymakers, but also in the literal sense, how do you find enough energy for your family? Nuclear not only shows up in those conversations in an interesting way, but some of the common fears seem less pressing when it's about whether your hearth is warm. That's a really interesting thing I've, I've noted both in professional new energy spaces and energy discussions, policy discussions, and also man on the street. I don't know, but I have these feelings sort of conversations. So down the pub, we might say. Now, in terms of whether nuclear is always going to be in one conversation or another, that itself is, is a political minefield where people who like all green energies and think that nuclear belong do a lot of demonizing of coal, gas, oil when they're talking about nuclear as green. People who are into renewables and don't like nuclear do whatever it takes to associate nuclear and coal or nuclear and oil. As long as there's enough oil and coal, they don't like to associate nuclear with those things when they're surviving only because of their coal mines, like in Germany. Germany is talking about coal with a very different voice now than it did a few months ago. Like that's just, they know they're surviving because of it. And so they're giving it a little bit of respect. But for many people who work in renewables, there is an effort to make it to where the low carbon attribute of nuclear is irrelevant. And what matters is that it's a dirty, extractive, industrial energy, not like our wind and solar plants. So very interesting question, probably lots more that can be said. But um, yeah, thank you for answering that. I think we're going to see that quality of whether nuclear is in one or the other, or how it's treated, it will be in flux. For me personally, nuclear stands alone. The reason why it has the attributes that you would want from wind or solar, if you're not, you know, if you're not too close to either, if you're close to everything, it's all business, but if you're not too con- connected, it has the low environmental impact that you're hoping to get with a renewable technology. It has low carbon that you're hoping to get with renewables. But at the same time, it has that special quality of having fuel on site and being turn-onable, controllable by, by us that you share with the fossil fuels while being extremely compact and powerful in a small space, also shared with most fossil fuels. That puts it, for me, not in either of those categories, it stands alone. All right. So let's go into what saving an existing plant actually means, right? Because I'm sure that's wildly complicated, but but talk through that entire process for a bit. Sure. To badly butcher some, uh, some Tolstoy, every happy nuclear plant is the same. It's making some money and people like it. Every unhappy nuclear plant is unhappy for different reasons. So um, it's... The the only nuclear plants that have been under financial pressure to close really have been in the United States because we've had the fracking revolution that combined with fairly stupid and short-sighted electricity market rules have meant that for to, in order to stop short-term bleeding, private owners of nuclear plants have turned them off forever with years or decades left on their life because of short-run market conditions. So that is, that is an unhappy nuclear situation that's unlike pretty much anything else anywhere else in the world. Everywhere else in the world where we're trying to save nuclear, it's being closed for reasons that are not really financial. It's political pressure. It's uh, unpopularity. It's lack of desire to reinvest in, in, in upgrades, even if the upgrades would pay for themselves immediately. It's that sort of thing, right? It's nuclear phase-out policies. It's um, unpopularity locally, that's more rare. That's very rare. Typically, nuclear plants are extremely popular locally and less popular in capital cities. That's the way it works. So saving nuclear plants in the U.S., where the owner might even want to keep the plant, 
but the plant isn't making money and the owner's under pressure from shareholders or to just cut losses and destroy the plant, that makes a weird, unusual relationship between us activists um, and the and the owning utilities. Let's just take an example that's a lot more clean, a real battle of good and evil. That's Diablo Canyon in California. So Diablo Canyon is scheduled to close for no particular reason. It's just some powerful people decided they wanted to kill. They saw an opening, they saw an opportunity, and they struck. So saving Diablo is going to be a matter of convincing a few of those powerful people to switch sides. That appears to be happening as we speak. And then also fighting back against the um, the entities that put the closure agreement in place and then replacing leadership at all levels who went along with what was clearly a devastating bad decision. That will be the sort of the mop-up oppor- opportunity as we, as we save Diablo Canyon. In the case of Diablo Canyon, the owner, PG&E, is relatively sketched out by our efforts, not sure whether to punish employees caught being part of pro saving the nuclear plant. They have to be very careful because of morale issues, obviously. But like the, the owner of Diablo Canyon is always and forever afraid of insulting or pissing off the political state leadership who hold life and death power over PG&E as a corporation. So PG&E is not actively trying to destroy their plan as fast as possible from, for some nefarious reason, but new, neither can they act or advocate for their own interests um, for the state's interests, really, in saving the plant. So they're kind of on the side, sort of a non-entity. Then it's about um, various business interests trying to kill it, various business interests trying to save it, um, making sure that the, that the people the people of California want to save it are acting in a reasonable way and sending op-eds to the press and hosting local events and showing up at meetings for electricity retail groups and saying, why don't you buy uh, Diablo power, you know, it's super cheap and it lowers their carbon emissions, showing up at those meetings, protesting. Um, those are the things that are involved in turning around Diablo. Then there's a lot of stuff below the surface, like organizing climate scientists to speak out on this issue while it still matters. Um, getting buy-in from various business groups that they should care what happens to Diablo and they need to stand up for it. That's all the stuff that's a little bit less public. Uh, let's let's go to the politics of this for a bit. Um, I'm going to assume, like every industry, there's a fairly large lobbyist group when it comes to nuclear. Um, how engaged are different companies in talking with uh, governments around the world around just changing the rhetoric, right? And and, and in terms of how to think about uh, nuclear in general. We'll be back after a quick break. Foodies unite with How You Dish. It's social media with a secret sauce. Food, the world's first network for food enthusiasts. How You Dish connects foodies across the world. Share kitchen tips and recipe hacks. Discover hidden gem food joints and street food. Find foodies like you. Connect, chat, and organize meetups. How You Dish makes it simple to connect through food anywhere in the world. So, how do you dish? Download How You Dish on the Apple App Store now. Oh, boy. So first of all, I have to contradict a bunch of the stuff that I've said. Whenever I've said nuclear industry, yeah, it does not exist. There is no truly unified voice for the nuclear industry. There's a bunch of extremely parochial interests. In some ways, this is a naturally emergent part of a relatively stagnant industry historically, where there's not a lot of growth happening. It means that existing entities dominate. Who are the existing entities? Well, they're like any company that owns one or more nuclear reactor, in which case those companies typically own a bunch of other types of power plants and have a parochial, not in a, I don't mean that to be mean to mean like small minded, but they have relatively local issues, local perspectives, local values, local problems, right? Those, that means that there, that any unified voice for the nuclear industry is sort of held captive by whatever the like, I don't know, in the US, the biggest utility is or, or um, let me give you an example. And I hope I don't, I hope I don't offend anybody if they're, you're part of the industry lobbies and you're listening in. Um, let's say a utility in California goes along with a disastrous plan to destroy a profitable, excellent young nuclear plant like Diablo. Well, 
you know, it's not like the national lobbying body is going to say anything because the PG&E is a dues paying member, right? So you have a bunch of entities doing things that are bad or they're going along with horrible things for nuclear in general, but they're dues paying member and nobody wants to be a part of an industry association that's willing to steamroll one or more of its members in order to protect the whole. That's like already uh, the national lobbying body in the U.S. has had a bunch of defections over issues like that. Lobbying in nuclear is extremely weak. It's very small. Um, those of us who are pro-nuclear activists, it's a constant whine. We're constantly whining about how, I don't know, I don't know if it's uh, cancelable, but a little bit beta. Like a lot, of the, a lot of the folks that are involved in nuclear lobbying are very reliable and very obedient to the dictates of the industry. And the industry leaders came from excellent heads-down performance, quietly delivering behind the scenes. That attitude of predictability and obedience and excellence in, in uh, checklists, like that's the attitude that the industry has taken with public communications. And it doesn't work. It comes off as creepy, stilted, unnatural. And so the industry mainly just tries not to be in the news for any reason. So I think that is a pretty full answer. Um, lots of specific stories, but they offend people. I, I can be completely neutral about Bitcoin one way or another. I don't happen to have any Bitcoin. I have very smart people, both pro and anti-Bitcoin. A lot of Bitcoin mining will stop nuclear plants in the U.S. from closing or already has stopped nuclear plants in the U.S. from closing, regardless of what effect that has on the grid or the society. Um, more load is good for existing nuclear plants. That's clear. It's important. Um, that may be messing with carbon goals. That may not be the best use of electricity, whatever. I'm just saying that Bitcoin has helped keep some nuclear plants alive during that terrible gap in time, 2019, 2021, before the higher gas prices of 2022 kicked in and basically made it to where I don't think we're going to lose another nuclear plant the possible exception of Palisades in Michigan, because just fossil fuel prices are pretty high. Bitcoin is stepping in to buy electricity. Now, it shouldn't have been necessary. By that, I mean, Google needs just as much power, if anything, less interruptibly, uh, baseload power. They have just refused to actually buy nuclear electricity historically. They just refuse it. There's somebody high up who appears to be a radiophobe, and they just won't do it. So that's an example of why nuclear plants were closing because people wouldn't get people wouldn't buy the low carbon power and on long term contracts that allowed the nuclear plant owners to de-risk, uh, mar you know, their market revenues. So I think going forward, Bitcoin is going to be something that good or bad for society, good or bad for the I don't know, the grid as a whole, good or bad for carbon. It is good for existing nuclear plants and is likely to be good for securing revenue lines like per power purchase agreements in the future for new nuclear plants. And again, I say that without any statement about whether that's good or bad for society as a whole, whether it's good that Bitcoin's there or not or whatever. I'm just saying it will help. On the question of whether nuclear plants can move up and down, yeah, they can, they can move up and down a lot. <laughs> have you ever tried to move a solar or a wind farm up in, in, in power? You, you can't. You just have to wait, right? So it's a, it's a fake problem constructed by people who think of one set of rules for wind and solar and another set of rules for nuclear or one set of rules for everybody, special advantages and protections given to wind and solar. That's the, that's the reason there's a problem. You know, up in Canada, there's no issue with nuclear plants needing to turn off much for wind and solar because they just give new uh, wind and solar a contract that pays them whether the power is needed or not. And, and the nuclear plants just stay on and it's all good, just really wasteful and expensive. Um, so nuclear plants can run up and down, but why don't we just make the wind and solar run up and down? Because they're the ones that aren't available in the pinch when the weather isn't right. Yeah. But to do that, you have to change your thinking about what's the point of the electricity market is the point of the electricity market just to build more wind and solar, or is it to reward the right power plants at the right time? Is it to figure out what type of plant should be built? I, I, people are very confused. Electricity markets, my my biggest crank view is that they're absolutely a horrible way 
to manage the electricity system. Very, very bad. And that they were invented partly to kill nuclear plants. And the rules were set in ways that almost specifically target and disadvantage nuclear investment. That, I think, is a pretty big problem, not that nuclear plants can, can't turn up and down. There's only a few nations on planet Earth that do need to do a large amount of varying their nuclear plants because they have so many of them. France is one of them, but then France does it. They move their nuclear plants up and down as a fleet. They're, they're very skilled at modulating their power output. So I think that's a pretty complete, if out of order, answer to your question on the load following. So I used to be a lot more negative about anything that smelled like nuclear technology innovation. When, from my reading, that wasn't really the problem. The problem was electricity markets not rewarding nuclear. The problem was ESG investors excluding nuclear unfairly. The problem was we're bad at building anything, especially large projects. Um, problem is that we let all our trades atrophy, like that sort of thing, right? I've become more optimistic about SMRs partly just because you watch some startups in the space sector and it takes some time, but then they get up and running and then they can build bigger once they learn how to big, build smaller. I think there's going to be relearning that happens because smaller projects are done in larger numbers. I don't think that that's the optimal way to make electricity in the long run. It's just if we have to start from scratch, it may be better to go back to the beginning on some things or shrink down our project size, learn how to do it small, and then scale up. So I think that's, I, I think that's where I am right at the moment. And I'm, I'm actually getting excited about a number of SMR approaches that we've seen coming down the pipe. And I think that um, I, in general, I'm more excited about conservative designs and less excited about radical ones. But I love the radical ones as an engineer and maybe a tinkerer. I, I just really love the exploration. I'm a little bit less, uh, less relying on them to make electricity in the next 10 years, if that makes sense. So then roadblocks. I think one of the biggest roadblocks is just that very large institutional money has stayed on the sidelines. I think one of the biggest roadblocks is that we haven't necessarily got the best construction management, the best asset managers. I don't think we've had the best of the best working on nuclear, which is the greatest and hardest energy in some ways. It's, it deserves the best people and the best attention. It deserves the best money. I think that's coming and a number of other roadblocks may be cleared out. So here's one. Politicians on the left and the right in, uh, in Washington, D.C. want to see NRC be more effective. NRC actually does kind of want to reform on the inside. They just seem incapable of it. And we keep seeing really terrible folks in terms of what they can do to mess up an organization like NRC be appointed administratively to be in charge of it. Like, like nobody involved with NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, should ever be anywhere near position of public responsibility in general, much less involved in like something like NRC, because they can do a ton of damage. They can gum up the works. They can bully people around. They can just cause a huge mess that takes years to clean up. And we're just seeing somebody, um, you know, appointed to in a position or selected for a position like that who just might not want progress, right? So I think that NRC remains a little bit troubling, but I, I want to say that almost everyone I've heard of that has worked there says that people genuinely are excited at the NRC for new approaches. They just may not be set up right to deliver it. And they may not have the individual incentives on each desk for rapid, skilled, up and down answers that let people iterate or refile paperwork or, or focus on the key performance issues or the key technical questions in each new design. So yes, I think the NRC is going to be an issue. Going around the NRC is embarrassing for the US. It is a bad look. But it's going to be happening until Capitol Hill can get together and reform the NRC that lets it be a strong, competent, independent nuclear regulator, not just rubber stamping any dumb design that comes up to it, but rapidly and effectively giving an up or down answer, both to technical questions and concerns, but also to the designs as a whole. That has got to happen. I don't know whether it's going to happen fast enough to 
squander USA's current enthusiasm in SMRs. But I'm certainly hopeful and I'll certainly want to be involved in that process as it continues. Eddie, very, first of all, thank you for the compliments on the pre previous subjects. Um, very interesting question, a little bit harder to understand, but I think I've got a sense of what you're looking for. How does it change the balance of world power, of production, of wealth, of wealth generation? If we had a world where only hydroelectricity could power aluminum smelt, only hydro could get the job done and everything else meant if you didn't have hydro, you couldn't have industrial uh, sources of wealth. That would that would you would just look at a map, look at where the rivers are, look at the hydraulic head, look at the the flow of water, and and how it's going to change with uh, climate change, and you'd be able to feel your way through future power. Well, that's not the way it works. There's oil and gas and coal, right? Now, if you're thinking oil and gas and coal have to be removed, you can go back to just your hydro. Well, in a world with nuclear energy, any country with a coastline can have more or less as much as it wants. Now, that's a simplification. There are some places with a small bit, a very shallow warm water coastline. That'll be a bit trickier. But in general, nuclear energy is liberating if your country can self-organize, self-motivate, and, and execute a nuclear program. That is pretty wild. It doesn't mean you're gonna. It doesn't mean you're gonna pull it off. But um, let me give an example of Ghana. Ghana has electricity. The people of Ghana expect to have electricity. They get really upset when the electricity system has struggles, as it has off and on for the past 15 years. Ghana is going to do something about it. Meeting the leaders of the Ghanaian nuclear program, you can feel the strength. And they. I really feel, although, you know, where this whole nuclear renaissance is young and I'm young, I felt the seriousness and focus with which they want to get nuclear energy. And if Ghana gets it, no one in Nigeria can say, why are we looking at nuclear? Isn't that a waste of time or effort? Everyone in Nigeria is going to be able to say, why does Ghana get nuclear energy? Why can't we have it? So that sort of, if they can do it, why not us? That only takes a few countries in areas without nuclear energy, getting it before the copycat, the, the, the FOMO kicks in, the fear of missing out. So for example, the Philippines suddenly adding nuclear energy to their national, uh, their national development program, that really matters. And you can bet that every other country in Southeast Asia is going to look at that. They all, or almost all of them have coastlines or rivers. They're going to be able to have the cooling water they don't have to have their own uranium supplies because uranium is different as a strategic commodity. It's a pain in the ass to get a new uranium contract or new fuel manufacturing or new fuel services in a pinch. Like a bunch of countries are having to disentangle from Russia's bountiful and low priced uh, fuel sector. Right. So but they can. That's the thing. Because so little uranium is needed. It can be stockpiled. It can be ordered in advance. You can diversify your suppliers, right? It means that a country can make it on its own with some help, with some starting, uh, uh, you know, starting step ladders. And maybe the only limitation for the future I see is countries with almost no access to cooling water are going to be more limited on the location or the amount or the type of nuclear technology they receive. Everything else is a sort of a choosing to succeed for your society by getting enough nuclear. Now, there's enough happening in electrification and maybe hydrogen or whatever. Those are some cases better than the services they replace, electrifying. Some cases worse or less efficient than the services they replace. But it is happening. And that's why you can look at the future built around uranium electricity and then potentially um, uranium heat in the case of some electricity, some uh, industrial processes that do better with heat. And you can say that the uranium or the thorium in the future, if there are there's thorium fueled reactors, that's not going to be the limitation. It's going to be human optimism. It's going to be international cooperation. And it's going to be a sort of, I'd say, courage for countries to insist on having their own nuclear program. That's what's going to achieve a world where 
your natural resources had never been less limiting. So first of all, contrary to popular understanding, a bunch of different reactors have been run off of thorium fuels. Um, in most cases, they were quickly substituted out for uranium fuels because performance was a lot higher. It wasn't worth the effort. Now, I, I am personally quite excited about one of the companies I work with, which, which is involved in um, adding thorium to enriched uranium for use in a very particular type of reactor found in, in Canada and India. So I think that energy from thorium is coming. I definitely think that folks get over fixated on the thorium aspect and forget that if you're having to invent a new reactor, you have all the problems of doing that. And it's not good enough to say we had the reactor in the past or we had the capability in the past. Um, I mean, we had the capability to go to the moon in the past, and we still have to relearn it if we're going to do it again. Thorium, we know works, but not as well as uranium in the vast majority of reactor types that have been tried and that exist today. Fortunately, uranium is very plentiful. And we will have time to test out many different ways of getting nuclear energy, um, some of which, like the, the one I mentioned, will, will involve thorium. I think that's a good place to end it. So listen, everybody that's joined, make sure you follow Mark here. Uh, Mark, really do appreciate spending the hour. I'm going to make this an edited YouTube uh, video probably in a week or two. And everybody enjoy the rest of your uh, rest of your day or night, depending on your time zone. Thanks, Mark. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Michael. The content in this program is for informational purposes only. You should not construe any information or other material as investment, financial, tax, or other advice. The views expressed by the participants are solely their own. A participant may have taken or recommended any investment position discussed, but may close such position or alter its recommendation at any time without notice. Nothing contained in this program constitutes a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer to buy or sell any securities or other financial instruments in any jurisdiction. Please consult your own investment or financial advisor for advice related to all investment decisions. Don't forget to follow at Lead Lag Report on X, Instagram, Threads, and YouTube, and check out the Lead Lag Report at www.leadlagreport.com. Use promo code PODCAST30 for two weeks free and 30% off to get access to award-winning research and anticipate stock market crashes, corrections, and bear markets.